Let me invite you now, if you have a Bible, to open it to the book of Hosea. If you don't know where it is, go to Daniel and take a right. And if you take a left, you're going to end up in Ezekiel, and we will never find you again. (laughs) I have never preached out of the book of Hosea. And I've spent the past month studying the book of Hosea. And I am inflamed with joy about being able to preach it. Um, It is a great book that speaks to us in ways that are going to surprise all of us and yet uh, will also bring to us a great deal of encouragement and comfort. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in chapter 1 verse 1 and today we'll just read the first chapter but the focus of our attention will be on an introduction to the book of Hosea so that we can hopefully see the Lord wet our appetites for this book. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord, Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name Nazi on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, Not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that you would grant to us the gifts of your Holy Spirit, which we are indwelt by, but that he might help us understand the words of the prophet today. We pray that he would empower both the one who preaches and the ones who hear to be able to listen to have a responsive, tender, receptive heart, and to apply the truth as it comes home to all of us. And we pray this for the sake and name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Now, the book of Hosea is a very interesting book 
in many ways. In the message of the book of Hosea, we see the passion of God. We see the jealousy of God. We see the commitment and steadfastness of God. We even see, in an anthropopathic way, (laughs) the heartbreak of God. Now, let me just clear something up right away. We know that God is the creator, we're the creature. We know that God is infinite, we are finite. We know that God has feelings, but his feelings are not like ours, thank God. They are always consistent, immovable, steadfast, immutable. They never change. But when I say the heartbreak of God, that is what is called an anthropopathism. That is man, pathos feeling. It is God adjusting his communication with us to ways in which we can understand what he's communicating to us. For example, God doesn't have fingers, he doesn't have eyes, he doesn't have arms, he doesn't have a body, yet he uses, by analogy, all of those features to communicate to us truth. And so when we look at these things in Hosea, he's going to push us really hard to see the nature of God's covenant heart toward his children. And one of the most important things that I think you can learn as we look at this book of Hosea is that God is a God who loves us beyond what we could ever hope or dream for. And people often talk about how they feel about God, but Hosea tells us what God feels about us. So when we look at this book, You uh, don't expect to discover what to do when your boss is messing you around. And don't expect this book will tell you what to do when your children misbehave or whether you need to decide to move somewhere else and sell your house. But do expect to discover the very passions of God. It is, of course, important to apply the Bible to the details of our life. But we need to do so in the light of the big picture. And you can plan your daily routine, but what really sets the course of your life is your vision of who God is and what he is like. And so the gospel is not a mechanical process with inputs and outputs. The gospel is relational. The gospel is covenantal. You're going to hear me talk a lot about covenant here because Hosea is full of it. He uses the name of God, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, which is in your Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He uses it more than any other writer in the Bible. And so he's saturated with covenant. So here's what the book of Hosea is really about. Our relationship with God is like a covenant marriage. Our relationship with God is like a dysfunctional marriage. And the book of Hosea tells us how God heals his marriage and what it's going to cost him. Think about that concept of covenant for a moment. What is a covenant? Well, a covenant is a relationship, but it is a relationship more loving and intimate than merely a legal relationship or a contract. 
Yet it's more binding and enduring and accountable than a merely personal relationship. The covenant is a stunning blend of law and love. It is stunning because it's a personal relationship made more loving and intimate because it's legal, though voluntary, mutual, binding promises and vows to be loving and to be faithful no matter what the circumstances. That is a covenant. And modern culture doesn't really have a category for this. Because in modern society, relationships more and more start like this. Two people look at each other and they say, I will be what I should be as long as and to the degree that you are what you should be. And if you're not, I'm done. In a covenant, two people look at each other and say, I will be what I should be whether you are being what you should be or not. And therefore, it's scary to get into a covenant. It only works if both people in the covenant say that in a covenant relationship, both have to say, I will be what I should be, even if you're not what you should be. If only one says it and the other does not, then what you have is exploitation, maybe even abuse. If you really do get into a covenant relationship where two parties are each saying, you are more important than I am. The relationship is more important than what my needs are. I will be committed to your needs before my needs. I will be committed to the relationship even if it's not meeting my needs at this very moment. And will be committed to your needs before my needs. I give you my in independence. I give you part of my freedom as a gift of love. And if one side or the other side are, are both saying that, if both people are saying, I'm not after my needs, I'm after your needs, I will sacrifice for you. If both people are saying that, then it is far more fulfilling, far more deep and profound, far more life-changing and joyful as a relationship than a consumer relationship could ever be or a contract in which each side says I will be this as long as you are meeting my needs now what we have in the book of Hosea is God being faithful to Israel and Israel being unfaithful to God and so God calls this guy named Hosea as a prophet what do we know about him nothing he is mystery man. I have been reading probably 500 pages of introductory material on Hosea to try to find out if anybody. And the only thing you'll get is some Jewish traditions say when he died, he instructed everybody to put him on a camel and to send him on the pathway back toward Jerusalem. And wherever the uh, camel stopped, they would bury him. And apparently there is a place that marks the burial of Hosea. He didn't make it to Jerusalem, some other town, uh, in the middle of nowhere. Which sounds exactly like the guy. Exactly like the guy. Now he's a genius. He is brilliant. He's a poet. He's an artist. He's steeped in the Old Covenant. He's steeped in the understanding of the first five books of the Bible. He knows Deuteronomy like the back of his hand. He understands everything that has come before him. He's a contemporary of, uh, well, a little before Isaiah, but a little overlap. And he's around the time that Elijah uh, met with the prophets of Baal uh, and destroyed them. But Hosea is a very interesting guy, very interesting character. Um, 
Here's what uh, Derek Kidner said. He, he never wrote this anywhere, but I read another guy who said Kidner said this. And Kidner's a very incisive, uh, brief, really good commentator. He said this, Hosea is a wild garden. The book of Hosea is a wild garden. It is not manicured. It is not neat. It is not symmetrically arranged. It is not balanced. But it is a wild garden. Maybe he was French. I mean English. I don't know. Don't the French have really ordered perfectly quaffed gardens? But Hosea is an artist. And he has an artist heart. And so when you read this book, you're going to see him going all over the place. But there is a method to his madness. It is certainly not uh, mechanical. But it is my prayer that as we explore the message of Hosea, that the Spirit of God would so reveal God's passion that he stirs our passion, that we become jealous for God, that our commitment to God... Uh, would grow and increase into a covenant relationship that our heartbreak at our sin would grow that our enthusiasm to serve him and to love uh, the lost who are broken around us this is what we can expect from Hosea we can expect God to expose our unfaithfulness and to show us how fickle is our love toward him we can expect God to pursue us to wound us to rebuke us in his passion for his glory and our good. He will be ruthless. It will not always be comfortable. C.S. Lewis said, An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us. A vast power which we can tap best of all. But God himself, alive pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching as an, at infinite speed the hunter, the king, the husband. That's quite another matter. But we can also expect God, as we look at the book of Hosea, to allure us, to embrace us, to speak tenderly to us. We can expect God to heal us and revive us and to bind up our wounds and to raise us up. We can expect God to gather us un underneath his shadow and uh, in the oppressive heat of life's problems, and we can still flourish and blossom. We can expect God to come to us like rain on the dry ground. The Lord says, Then I will heal you of your faithfulness, faithlessness. My love will know no bounds, for my anger will be gone forever. I will be to Israel like a refreshing dew from heaven. Now, Let's look at, we've looked at the author a little bit, Hosea. We do know this about him. He's from the northern kingdom. If you know much about your Bible, you know that right after the reign of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split into two. Ten tribes went to the north. Judah and Benjamin stayed in the south, and we had a divided kingdom. And Hezekiah, I mean Hosea, by his references in this book, to cities in the north by his dialect in the Hebrew we know that 
chances are pretty high that he's from the northern kingdom. He is the only prophet from the northern kingdom. But he doesn't just prophesy to the north, he prophesies to the whole nation, both the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And we know that he prophesied uh, somewhere between the reign of Jeroboam and the fall to Assyria in 722 BC. He had about a 35 or 40 year ministry that occurred there and may have made the trip out of uh, the northern kingdom and had come to Judah in the southern kingdom and prophesied there. We're not sure about that, but it is possible because of the history and overlap of his reign. Now, when we look at the context of this and the original audience of Hosea, uh, we see that Hosea mentions four kings of Judah, and he uh, refers often to the ten northern tribes that are known usually as Israel or Ephraim. And um, we know that he probably ended his ministry somewhere between 729-722. I don't want to get into that too much, but as the prophet Amos recognized the increasing prosperity had led to faithlessness among God's people, Hosea faced widespread Baal worship. You're going to see and hear a lot about Baal worship, spelled B-A-A-L. If I was speaking in Hebrew, I would call it Baal. But since I'm speaking in Southern English, it's Baal, like B-A-I-L. That's how you pronounce it. I looked it up. So, <laughs> it's important to understand what had happened in this time. The worship had Baal of Baal had first been introduced into Israel during the reign of King Ahab and his notorious wife, Queen Jezebel. Now it was back, and people practiced idolatrous worship on hilltops, and there were alternative centers of worship at Bethel and Gilgal. Their worship incorporated idolatrous images, sacred pillars, and the consulting of spirits and magic, and most of all, cultic prostitution. There was also a growing abuse of power and privilege. Dr. Van Gamberen, who taught me at Reform Seminary, describes it as a period of opulence, prosperity, opportunism, and scheming during which the rich and powerful availed themselves of all the opportunity to live luxuriously. Hosea was God's messenger to a complacent, self-indulgent, apostate people. Politicians and merchants in Samaria, Israel's capital, prospered while workers and farmers suffered. Hosea speaks of drunkenness, armed robbery, and murder. There was widespread corruption among the leaders of the nation. Israel has also become proud, and economic progress only added to its self-confidence. The social structure encouraged power, greed, self-indulgence, corruption of justice, luxurious living among the upper classes, and the decay of social unity. The affluent showed uh, no sense of responsibility toward the poor, and as the gap between the rich and the poor became ominously wide, the poor were reduced to the level of slaves while the aristocracy imitated royalty and adopted a lavish lifestyle. 
during this period, Hosea's message must have sounded unlikely. He is announcing the coming of God's judgment in a time when all that anyone around him could see was blessing. But during this period, after the death of Jeroboam II, the situation in the north begins to unravel. Hosea begins by announcing the fall of Jehu's dynasty, and with its fall, the internal political stability of Israel comes to an end. Listen to this. Jeroboam II was followed by six kings in 30 years, three of whom ruled for less than two years each, and four of whom were assassinated. One after another, each of the four uh, uh, were assassinated. Kings seized the throne through military coups. The dagger ruled in Israel. Factions vied for control. Some favored an alliance with Egypt. Others favored an alliance with Assyria. None favored Yahweh. Assyria was resurgent and increasingly aggressive. The golden age of the first half of the 8th century Uh, proved merely to be a pause between uh, Aramean aggression and Assyrian dominance. Eventually, in 722, Assyria overwhelmed and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. So Hosea ministers during the close of a period of prosperity and the beginning of a calamity that would eventually culminate in the end of the northern kingdom. Now, as I told you earlier, nothing is known about the Hosea outside the book. The message of Hosea is primarily addressed to those in the northern kingdom. But there are references to those in the southern kingdom, and uh, he does speak to them as well. He does, uh, in a primary way, speak to the northern kingdom, in a secondary way, to the southern kingdom, and in a glorious way, he speaks to us. Now... What about um, his audience? We've already talked about that. Um, We need to remember that the primary audience was the northern kingdom. So let's look a little bit at the book and the text. Here's what I will tell you about the book and the text. It is the most difficult Hebrew in all of the Bible. It is the most difficult text in all of the Bible. Which is probably why a lot of guys don't preach on the book of Hosea, because it's challenging. But Hosea uses metaphor and wordplay uh, more than any other prophet. Israel is an unfaithful wife, a disappearing morning mist, a hot oven, a silly dove, a faulty bow, a wild donkey, a frustrated shepherd, a destructive moth, or undesired rot, or ferocious lion and trapper. Coming judgment is like harvesting the whirlwind, the washing away of debris, the yoking of a recalcitrant heifer, and a return to the wilderness. But God is also a forgiving husband, a feeling healing physician, a reviving rain, a loving parent, a protecting lion, a life-giving dew. A fertile pine tree. The poetic panoply was perhaps required to give the full expression to the passions of God that form Hosea's central theme. And so this book is structured in unique ways, and I don't really want to jump too much into any kind of outline of it because who wants to sit and listen to somebody talk about an outline of the book? 
Most people don't. But the first three chapters are really interesting. And here's what's going on. He gives us an enacted parable. What he does, and James Montgomery Boyce is really interesting on this. What he does is he tells his prophet to go and marry a woman of whoredom. Now, the Hebrew word underneath that phrase whoredom is basically one who is given to fornication. Basically what it means. And so why would God who is holy tell his prophet who is holy, go marry a whore? Why would he do that? And why would he tell him to have children with this woman? And as we will look more carefully next week, two of them were probably not his children. Why would God tell him to do that? I might save that for next week, just so you'll think about it. But why would God call a prophet to do that? I mean, are we holier than God? No. But why would he do that? Why would he take this man, this prophet, this guy named Hosea, who nobody knows anything about, and say, I want you to marry, and I cannot help but say what it says, a woman of whoredom. That sounds a little nicer than a whore. And why would he tell him to have children? And he'll tell him later to go marry her again, to go find her and marry her again. Why would he tell him that? It's amazing because Hosea is being called by God to be an enacted parable of Hosea represents God, the lover of Israel. And Gomer is going to represent Israel and the children are going to represent what God is going to do to the nation. And the rest of that is woven together throughout the succeeding chapters of the book. This man is brilliant. And so is the Holy Spirit for that matter. But it is amazing what this book does. Now, I could get caught up in this and forget that we only have so much time. But we have a little more time. Let's talk about the key themes of the book of Hosea. Hosea was ministering around the same time that the prophet Amos ministered and both announced the judgment of God against the northern kingdom of Israel. But whereas Amos focuses on the social injustice of the nation, Hosea focuses on the spiritual infidelity of the nation. Amos declares that the people were unjust Hosea says they're unfaithful. So Amos has been called the prophet of divine righteousness, while Hosea is called the prophet of divine love. He rarely uses the language of righteousness and justice and instead speaks of knowing God and faithfulness. Hosea uses God's personal covenantal name, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, nearly twice as many times as he uses the generic term Elohim for God. And when Hosea does refer to God, it's usually with a personal pronoun, Yahweh, your God. Foundational for the Hosea's message of spiritual infidelity is his own experience of marriage to an adulterous wife. Chapters 1 and 3 present us with an enacted parable. The adultery of Hosea's wife and her redemption enact the adultery of Israel and God's refusal to give her up. Chapter 2 provides a poignant commentary on this parable. 
God called Hosea not only to speak to the nation, but also to serve as a living symbol of the larger spiritual reality of Yahweh's love for promiscuous Israel. By this means, the truth of their violations of the covenant was made visibly literal before them. Such a bold demonstration was necessary because the people themselves could not see their departure from Yahweh. To me, they cry, my God, we Israel know you. Though the most prominent in chapters 1 through 3, the theme of adultery continues beyond. The words prostitution or to prostitute appear in metaphorical sense 15 times throughout the book in 14 chapters. In addition to one reference to literal literal cultic prostitution, chapter 4 opens in the divorce court with God making his charge against his people. Moreover, the repeated word know or acknowledge is the same word used in Genesis 4 to describe sexual intercourse. The problem was, and hear me carefully here, the problem was not that the people were irreligious. The problem was not even that they had stopped worshiping Yahweh. The problem was their infidelity and their divided loyalties. As for sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. Israel was an unfaithful wife, sharing her love with both Yahweh and the Baals, and her lawful husband could no longer support her affairs with other lovers through further manifestations of his mercy. And so Hosea uses daringly emotive language to speak of God's wounded jealousy and enduring love. Here's what the people were doing. It's called syncretism. And syncretism is blending together. You know, you used to hear the term all the time in church circles, well, we have blended worship. We use contemporary forms, and we use traditional forms, and we blend those together to irritate everybody. Not really, but maybe. But we're talking about blended worship here by following at the same time the fertility god Baal with Yahweh. There's only one true and living God. And God will brook no right. He will have none of that. But they were going through the motions every week. But their heart was not with Yahweh. They were looking at Baal. Why? Because the Baal gods promised more immediate fulfillment. And even the cultic prostitution the prostitution involving worship had seeped into Yahweh worship. And the reason why was the cultic prostitution was a gesture toward the god Baal to increase fertility as they went through this ritual sexual prostitution at worship. You say, well, these people were really bad. Yeah, they were. They were really bad, just like you. And just like me, they were really bad. Now, the way we do it is we don't go do those things, but spiritually we commit the same kind of adultery. When we allow an idol of our heart to dominate us 
and control us. And it becomes, see, most of us are walking around with that tension between the idols and, and Jesus. And that's what Hosea is going to speak to. And that's why this book is so contemporary. Because he goes right for the heart, right for the jugular in some ways. But not only in the religious sphere, but in the political arena, Israel was unfaithful. In moments of crisis, they were turning to other nations instead of going to Yahweh. So the, th this book is a mess. Another theme of this book, and I only do one or two more, the theme of God's people as God's bride is to the fore, but God's people as God's children is also a prominent theme. Sometimes the metaphors shift from husband and wife to father-child, but sometimes it's a development of the marriage metaphor. Individual Israelites are the children born to collective Israel, bride and mother. Israel, the wayward wife, is the leadership, institutions, and culture of Israel. The children are the ordinary men and women who are trained and nurtured in that culture. And so the children have followed their mother, superstitious and fearful, while at the same time captivated by the alluring benefit of Baalism, the cult prostitute. They knew, know nothing of their father Yahweh. Indeed, one cannot even say that Yahweh was their father. They are a lost generation. And so they had fallen into syncretism, uh, and were totally unaware. Uh, they, they were so deceived in their own hearts, they thought what they were doing was pleasing to God. Obviously, it was not. Another theme we'll see in this book is that prosperity leads to self-reliance. People misinterpret their prosperity. They regard it as a sign of Baal's blessing and a validation of the Baal fertility cult. I even go so far as to tell you this. At one point in the book, they call Yahweh Baal. <laughs> now, no wonder in chapter 4 he starts writing the bill of divorcement. But Hosea is full of references to Israel's history from recent events. But uh, other themes that I could talk about in this book are turning. That is the word turn, return, or repent is used 22 times in Hosea. Repentance is used in the book. Judgment is used in the book. Salvation is used in the book. All of these are big themes. Divine sovereignty and judgment are used in the book. Hosea is insistent that God is no stranger to the rough and tumble, either in an international diplomacy or the pettiness of domestic politics. God is a living and real God who's not being left behind by tomorrow's headlines. But there's one last thing I want to consider, and that is the gospel according to Hosea. So what, if anything, do the words of an Israelite wordsmith who's stuck in a relationship with a congenitally unfaithful woman, have to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel means good news, and there seems to be precious little of it in this book. His wife, Gomer, is described as promiscuous, adulterous, and unfaithful. She holds her morality as loosely as a new parent holds a dirty diaper regarding it as an unwelcome part of life to be held at arm's length and jettisoned at the earliest possible opportunity. 
God uses the sad circumstances that makes up the soap opera of Hosea's marriage to draw a parallel between Gomer's infidelity and that of his people. Like an unfaithful wife, they too have deserted the Lord. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart, and they do not acknowledge the Lord. If we are at all objective, we have to conclude that Gomer certainly does not deserve the love that Hosea keeps lavishing on her. And Israel doesn't deserve the love that God keeps lavishing on them. And of course, when we arrive at this negative judgment of Gomer and Israel, we also arrive at a negative judgment about ourselves, because we are no different. Hosea had committed himself to a marriage relationship with a partner who habitually failed to honor it. And God has committed himself to a relationship with a people who habitually failed to honor it. In fact, throughout history, human beings have never honored any relationship they've ever had with God, ever. For any relationship to exist and flourish... There must be commitments and fidelity on the part of both partners. But the human side of any potential divine human relationship contains a defect in that regard. We are just as incapable of faithfulness to God as Gomer was incapable of faithfulness to Hosea. That's really bad news. The Apostle Paul says it this way, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good. No, not one. Clearly, there is no hope possible from our end for a different future outcome for any relationship we enter into with God. Any hope at all, unlikely and unmerited as it is, would have to come from God himself. Surprisingly, through Hosea, God promises just such a different future. With amazing grace, God declares to his people that he will heal their waywardness and that he will love them freely. He won't abandon them to experience the pain, brokenness, and ruin that inevitably results from their rejection of him. Instead, he will deliver them from the power of the grave. He will redeem them for death, and that is good news. But how on earth could that even be possible when dealing with the relationship partners whose morals are loose? The answer, of course, is that it isn't possible on earth. The answer must come from somewhere else heaven the only possible way for there to be a lasting secure unbreakable relationship between the perfectly faithful God and fundamentally flawed human beings is for human beings to become perfectly faithful as well and that is precisely why God became a human being that's what the incarnation is all about to accomplish on our behalf what we're incapable of accomplishing ourselves. He upholds the human side of the divine human relationship by providing a perfect human being. God himself in the flesh uh, is our representative. For all of us who by faith claim Jesus as our perfect human representative, our relationship with God is now just as uninterrupted as Jesus' faithfulness on our behalf. In other words, by faith, Jesus' righteousness is counted as our righteousness. The spiritual wardrobe tra trade is what's being 
or change is what's being described in Revelation 19, 7 and 8 as the characteristic clothing of the faithful bride of Christ. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Notice that the fine linen was given to her. It's not something she earned or otherwise obtained through her efforts. The passage goes on to say that fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. But that's gospel shorthand. We are told elsewhere that all our righteous acts are filthy rags. Hardly the equivalent of fine linen. What the verse in Revelation means is that Jesus' righteous acts are given to his people and credited as their own righteous acts. It is this fine linen alone that can produce, provide us access to the wedding supper of the Lamb. It is the faithfulness of Jesus that makes the church a faithful bride. The New Testament alludes to the prophecy of Hosea when it reflects on the benefits of Jesus' faithfulness on our behalf. Because Jesus secures for us an unbreakable, everlasting relationship with God, the significance of the names of Hosea's children no longer apply. In fact, the opposite is true. The name of Hosea's first child was Jezreel, meaning God scatters. But through faith in Jesus Christ, God is now gathering people from every tribe, tongue, language, and kindred and nation. The name of Hosea's second child was Lo-Ruhamah, meaning no mercy or not loved. But Jesus reverses that meaning as well because God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for us. And the name of Hosea's third child was Lo-Ami, meaning not my people. The dissolution of the relationship is reversed through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ on behalf so that all those who trust him are now the adopted children of God, the people of God. And so the gospel of Hosea is the good news of a loving God who is so inexplicably and yet relentlessly committed to loving his people that he will do whatever it takes to rescue us and secure his relationship with us. In the New Testament, we learn that God's relentless love and desire for a relationship with us even extends to the sacrifice of his own son. The choice for, ever, uh, for every human being is clear. Either a miserable existence where there's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land, where there's only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery, where they break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed, which sounds like our evening news. The land dries up and all who live it waste away. Or a rich, abundant life in relationship with God through Jesus Christ where his people will flourish like the grain, blossom like the vine, and their fame will be like the wine of leaven. That is good news. The good news is we don't have to be gomers anymore. There's only one person I know who was named Gomer, and that was a character <laughs> not a real person uh, parents don't name their daughters Gomer do they that's the gospel and that is our only hope that is our only hope again that is our only hope and that is the joy of the gospel now what does that do for us and why does this book matter to us because once we understand that and once we see the good news we will want to be more faithful to god we will want to live closer to him we will want him to be our all in all 
You see, that's how holiness comes about. It doesn't come about in order to get God's love. It comes about because I see God loves me and I've been so unfaithful to Him my whole life. And that melts the hardness and the shame and the resistance to want to live for Him. I'm looking forward to this book. I hope you will enjoy it as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It truly is alive and powerful. We thank you for this book that you have preserved for us, that is inspired by your spirit. And we pray that as we expose our lives to it, we know it will be painful, and yet we know it will also create joy. And we pray this knowing that you will be faithful to your word. Now we pray as we continue to worship you that we may give as people who have been delivered by the righteousness of Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.